second journey part three of narrative of the operations and recent discoveries in egypt and nubia by giovanni belzoni this librivox recording is in the public domain second journey part three the next sort of mummy that drew my attention i believe i may with reason conclude to have been appropriated to the priests they are folded in a manner totally different from the others and so carefully executed as to show the great respect paid to those personages the bandages are stripes of red and white linen intermixed covering the whole body and forming a curious effect from the two colours the arms and legs are not enclosed in the same envelope with the body as in the common mode but are bandaged separately even the fingers and toes being preserved distinct they have sandals of painted leather on their feet and bracelets on their arms and wrists they are always found with the arms across the breast but not pressing it and though the body is bound with such a quantity of linen the shape of the person is carefully preserved in every limb the cases in which mummies of this sort are found are somewhat better executed and i have seen one that had the eyes and eyebrows of enamel beautifully executed in imitation of nature among the various tombs i discovered one of this description in the valley adjacent to biban al-maluk on the west of it of which i shall have to speak hereafter i found eight mummies all untouched since they had been deposited in their resting-places the cases lay flat on the ground facing the east in two equal rows embedded four inches deep in mortar which must have been soft when they were put into it for when i had them removed the impression of them remained perfect the opening of them i shall describe with that of the tomb the tombs containing the better classes of people are of course superior to the others there are some more extensive than the rest having various apartments adorned with figures representing different actions of life funeral processions are generally predominant agricultural processions religious ceremonies and more ordinary occurrences such as feasting and so on are to be seen everywhere i shall not enter into a minute account of these paintings as they have been so often described particularly by mr hamilton whose perspicuous observations upon them give the best idea of their various representation it would be impossible to describe the numerous little articles found in them which are well adapted to show the domestic habits of the ancient egyptians it is here the smaller idols are occasionally found either lying on the ground or on the cases of the mummies vases are sometimes found containing the embalmed entrails of the mummies these are generally made of baked clay and painted over their sizes differ from eight inches to eighteen their covers represent the head of some divinity bearing either the human form or that of a monkey fox cat or some other animal i met with a few of these vases of alabaster in the tombs of the kings but unfortunately they were broken a great quantity of pottery is found and also wooden vessels in some of the tombs as if the deceased had resolved to have all he possessed deposited along with him the most singular among these things are the ornaments in particular the small works in clay and other composition i have been fortunate enough to find many specimens of their manufactures among which is leaf gold beaten nearly as thin as ours the gold appears to me extremely pure and of a finer colour than is generally seen in our own 
it is somewhat singular that no instruments of war are found in these places when we consider what a warlike nation the egyptians were what has become of their weapons i cannot conjecture for in all my researches i found only one arrow two feet long at one extremity it had a copper point well fixed in it and at the other a notch as usual to receive the string of the bow it had been evidently split by the string and glued together again among other articles too numerous to be mentioned the beetle or scarabaeus to all appearance a highly sacred animal is found in the tombs there are various sorts some of basalt verdi antico or other stones and some of baked clay they are scarce particularly those with hieroglyphics on them which no doubt contain some particular prayers or the commemoration of striking events in the life of the deceased it is supposed that the egyptians hung the scarabaeus to their necks when they went to war but of this we have no clear proofs i must mention a circumstance on this subject which perhaps will solve the doubt the scarabaei are of such a peculiar form that if they were among the ornaments of the warriors they would be easily distinguished one solitary instance of this kind i have observed there is a sitting figure in the tomb of Samithis, which i discovered in the valley below biban al-maluk that by its splendid dress and ornaments may be intended to represent a king it has a square plate of basalt hung to its neck with an obelisk in the centre and a figure on each side of it it was extremely fortunate in meeting with one of these plates i believe the only one that ever was found of the kind it has the form of an egyptian temple and in the centre is an elevated scarabaeus on a boat guarded by two figures one at each side and on the reverse of the scarabaeus is an inscription over a boat on which are two other figures exactly like the former the plate has the holes by which it was hung by a chain or string i found also other scarabaei with human heads which i never saw before the egyptians were certainly well acquainted with linen manufactures to a perfection equal to our own for in many of their figures we observe their garments quite transparent and among the folding of the mummies i observed some cloth quite as fine as our common muslin very strong and of an even texture they had the art of tanning leather with which they made shoes as well as we do some of which i found of various shapes they had also the art of staining the leather with various colors as we do morocco and actually knew the mode of embossing on it for i found leather with figures impressed on it quite elevated i think it must have been done with a hot iron while the leather was damp they also fabricated a sort of coarse glass with which they made beads and other ornaments besides enamelling the art of gilding was in great perfection among them as i found several ornaments of the kind they knew how to cast copper as well as to form it into sheets and had a metallic composition not unlike our lead rather softer but of greater tenacity it is much like the lead which we see on paper in the tea-chests from china but much thicker i found some pieces of it covered on both sides with a thin coat of another metal which might be taken for silver but i cannot believe it to be so it certainly is a proof of the scarcity of this metal in egypt where in my opinion it was less common than gold for it is seldom found whereas the latter is quite common on the ornaments 
carved works were very common and in great perfection particularly in the proportion of the figures and it is to be observed that though the egyptians were unacquainted with anatomy yet in these as well as in their statues of marble they preserved that sweet simplicity peculiar to themselves which is always pleasing to the beholder in one of the tombs of the kings i found two wooden figures nearly seven feet high of very fine workmanship they are in a standing posture with one arm extended as if holding a torch they had many other carved works hieroglyphics ornaments and so forth the art of varnishing and baking the varnish on clay was in such perfection among them that i doubt whether it could be imitated at present articles of the best sort of this manufacture however were rather scarce as there are but few to be found while on the contrary there are great quantities of the inferior sorts indeed the few good ones i met with were all in the great tomb of Samethis, and these are of the most beautiful colour the art of painting was but simple among the egyptians as they had no knowledge of shadowing to elevate their figures but great credit is due to them for their taste in disposing their colours there is great harmony even in the red and green which do not always agree with us and which they knew how to mingle so well that it produced a very splendid effect particularly by candlelight as i observed before i am of opinion that these colours were from the vegetable kingdom and i think i can produce a pretty strong proof of the fact the present natives of egypt who manufacture indigo make it up in cakes of the size of a sea-biscuit in a very rough manner not knowing how to extract the colour from the plant without mixing it with sand the cake glitters all over the light being reflected from every particle of this imperfection the ancient egyptians could not get the better for whenever there is blue in any of their paintings which is evidently indigo the same sparkling sand is to be seen as in the modern cakes their drawings and sculpture are but simple and systematically done notwithstanding which they knew how to impart a certain vivacity to their posture which animates their figures they knew little or nothing of perspective and all that was done was in profile the wall or whatever other place was to be ornamented was previously prepared by grinding it very smooth the first lines were done in red by a scholar or one not so expert as the master who examined the outlines and corrected them in black specimens of this are to be seen in the tombs of Samethis, as i shall have to mention hereafter when the outlines were completed the sculptor began his work he raised the figure by cutting away the stone all around it the angles are smoothly turned and the ornaments on the figure or garments are traced with a chisel which leaves a slight impression and adorns the whole figure the last was the painter who finished the piece they could not find any other colours than red blue yellow green and black the blue is divided into two sorts the dark and the light with these colours they adorned their temples tombs or whatever they wished to have painted as there is no colour among these that could imitate the living human flesh they adopted the red for this purpose the ornaments were decorated with the other colours and though so few i am sure they are not all used in the same piece as to their architecture i can only say it is in conformity with their ideas it is to be recollected that they had a notion of returning to life again body and soul after a period of three thousand years 
whence we may presume that they intended to make their edifices last so long that they might see them again in good preservation as to arches can we not prove from the circumstance of their having made them in a different form from ours that they could also have made them of a larger size than we see to this very day in thebes yes i say in thebes there are egyptian arches if any reader will observe plate forty four he will see an egyptian arch which exists at gournou under the rocks that separate this place from the valley biban al maluk the arch is made in a manner entirely different from our own but if the egyptians were inclined to have arches they might soon have constructed them in this manner and of considerable sizes equal in proportion to the enormous blocks which we see in their edifices no they did not want arches they preferred having their temples crowded with columns which formed the finest embellishments of their edifices and i assert that the number of these columns is no detriment to the beauty or magnificence of these sacred places on the contrary without these columns their architecture would not have appeared to the egyptians so substantially firm which was their principal object this in my opinion was their reason for not erecting arches but i shall endeavour farther to prove that they knew how to make an arch with the keystone as well as we do a traveller may wander among the ruins of thebes and his attention be so much taken by the magnificence of the great edifices as to overlook what is inferior especially what is constructed of simple bricks baked in the sun besides he has a preconceived notion that the egyptians were ignorant of the art of turning an arch so that if he should see one or even pass under an archway he would take it for granted that it was the work of a later people i shall now describe the situation of several arches which are to be seen in thebes point out the purposes for which they were evidently erected and leave the reader to conjecture whether they were made by the egyptians or by any other people the mode of building enormously strong walls with unburnt bricks is peculiar to the egyptians of this i trust there can be no doubt from the many instances clearly before our eyes but if it be questioned i would inquire of any traveller who has seen thebes whether he thinks that the wall which surrounded the avenue of sphinxes or lion-headed statues which i discovered at karnak could have been made by any other people there are even some of these walls that enclose their sacred places and if it be objected that some subsequent nation who adored the same gods may have created these walls to preserve the holy edifices i can boldly say no this is not the fact for the walls are so connected with the egyptian works that it is plain they were constructed at the same time with them but what is still more to the point at gournou there are various and extensive tombs excavated not in the rocks themselves but in the plains at their foot twelve or fourteen feet below the surface and extending a considerable length underground the way to these tombs is generally by a staircase which led into a large square hall cut in the rock in some instances ninety or a hundred feet long and opposite the stairs is generally the entrance into the tomb it is to be observed that these halls entered into the original plan of the structure there was nothing to protect or to enclose them on any side but a wall by which they were completely covered without this they would have been exposed to all the rubbish of other tombs which might have fallen in 
the necessity of building these walls is evident and i have no doubt many travellers will plainly see that no other succeeding nation would have built these enormous walls to preserve the tombs of the egyptians now over the stairs which lead into the hall there are some very high and majestic arches not only made of the same bricks but connected with the walls themselves consequently made by the egyptians and constructed with the same keystones as our own in the present day there is also at gournou a great number of other buildings of sunburnt bricks of a later date which i hope will not be confounded with the others some of these are built with a smaller sort of bricks others with bricks taken from the egyptian walls but their construction plainly shows the difference of the people who erected them if we extend our observations on the egyptian architecture it will appear that the egyptians undoubtedly have the merit of invention which i consider as the source of improvement and so forth the greeks may claim their having brought the art to great perfection but it is well known that they took their principal hints from the egyptians the egyptians were a primitive nation they had to form everything without any model before them to imitate yet so fertile was their inventive faculty that to this day new orders of architecture might be extracted from their ruins if we observe the egyptian capitals do we not see a complication of orders in one mass which if divided would produce numerous hints for new ideas if the lover of truth will but inspect the various representations of the lotus on the capitals he will plainly see that not only the doric and the corinthian orders have been extracted from them but that more might still be formed there is reason also to believe that the ionic order originated in egypt the capitals of the columns of tintira those in the small temple of edfu and lastly the others in the small temple of isis in the island of philo sufficiently indicate this the name of the deity to which the first and third of these temples are dedicated seems to strengthen this supposition we well know that isis is the io of the greeks from whom the name ionic was no doubt derived and it is very probable that he who introduced the order gave it that name as having been taken from the temple of the goddess the wonderful sculptures of the egyptians are to be admired for the boldness of their execution their enormous sizes rendered it difficult for the artists to maintain their due proportions which were according to the height of the figure for instance if a statue were erected of the size of life the head was of the natural size if the statue were thirty feet high the head was larger in proportion to the body and if fifty feet high the magnitude of the head was farther increased had it been otherwise in statues of so great height the distance from the eyes of the spectator would have so much diminished the size that the head would have appeared too small in proportion to the legs the tedious work of the endless hieroglyphics which are to be seen in every part of every edifice the numberless figures on the temples tombs obelisks and walls must have required wonderful labour they had only four sorts of stones in general use for sculpture the sandy the calcareous breccia and granite all except the first are very hard and what is most singular is we do not know with what tools they were cut out we have ocular demonstration that the tools of the present day will not cut granite without great difficulty and i doubt whether we could give it that smoothness of surface we see in egypt 
but i would observe it is not unreasonable to suppose that the granite and other stones were less hard at the time of the egyptians than they are at present on the calcareous stone the figures have angles so sharp that the best-tempered chisel of our time could not produce the light it is so hard that it breaks more like glass than stone and the granite is almost impenetrable at the end of the above-mentioned plain in gournou at the foot of the rocks which divide that valley from biban al-maluk the excavation was going on at the end of an avenue where sphinxes must have been here was found a causeway gradually rising to some ruins which being uncovered proved to be a temple with columns doubly octangular the only one of which form i saw in egypt the temple is evidently ancient but i dare not affirm it to be egyptian though it has hieroglyphics and so forth on the walls for the proportions of the plan as far as i could see and the order of the columns being totally different from any others of the egyptians lead me to suppose this temple to be of a later date farther on just under the rocks we discovered a granite door nine feet high by five wide and one and a half thick it is covered with hieroglyphics and figures neatly cut and on the top it has the winged globe and a cornice it had been painted and was buried entirely underground while my men were at work i was in the habit of searching among these tombs and entered all the places and holes i could possibly squeeze myself into in the large tombs i caused the side wall or rock to be struck with the large sledge-hammer to discover by the sound if any cavity were near one day the hammer not only gave a hollow sound but made an aperture a foot and a half wide into another tomb having enlarged the hole sufficiently to pass we entered and found several mummies and a great quantity of broken cases the stones which had fallen from the roof were as sharp as a razor and as my shoes were not very strong my feet were cut in several places these stones detach themselves from the roof in flakes which proves them to be much harder than when first cut in an inner apartment of this tomb is a square opening into which we descended and at the bottom found a small chamber at each side of the shaft in one was a granite sarcophagus with its cover quite perfect but so situated that it would be an arduous undertaking to draw it out among the mummies i found some small papyri and one extraordinarily large when i did not choose to pass the river in the night to our habitation at the temple of luxor i took up my lodging in the entrance of some of the tombs along with these troglodytes nothing could be more amusing to me their dwelling is generally in the passages between the first and second entrance into a tomb the walls and the roof are as black as any chimney the inner door is closed up with mud except a small aperture sufficient for a man to crawl through within this place the sheep are kept at night and occasionally accompany their masters in their vocal consort over the doorway there are always some half-broken egyptian figures and the two foxes the usual guardians of burial places a small lamp kept alive by fat from the sheep or rancid oil is placed in a niche in the wall and a mat is spread on the ground and this formed the grand divan wherever i was there the people assembled around me their conversation turning wholly on antiquities such a one had found such a thing and another had discovered a tomb 
various articles were brought to sell to me and sometimes i had reason to rejoice at having stayed there i was sure of a supper of milk and bread served in a wooden bowl but whenever they supposed i should stay all night they always killed a couple of fowls for me which were baked in a small oven heated with pieces of mummy cases and sometimes with the bones and rags of the mummies themselves it is no uncommon thing to sit down near fragments of bones hands feet or skulls are often in the way for these people are so accustomed to be among the mummies that they think no more of sitting on them than on the skins of their dead calves i also became indifferent about them at last and would have slept in a mummy pit as readily as out of it every human being can be happy if he likes for happiness certainly depends on ourselves if a man be satisfied with what he has he is happy but much more so when he thinks that there is nothing more to be got it is somewhat singular to talk of happiness among people who live in caves like brutes or rather who live in sepulchres among the corpses and rags of an ancient nation of which they know nothing but this is trifling compared with their slave-like state subject to the caprice of a tyrannical power who leaves them no chance of receiving any remuneration for their labour and no prospect of any change except for the worse but custom reconciles all this the labourer comes home in the evening seats himself near his cave smokes his pipe with his companions and talks of the last inundation of the nile its products and what the ensuing season is likely to be his old wife brings him the usual bowl of lentils and bread moistened with water and salt and when she can add a little butter it is a feast knowing nothing beyond this he is happy the young man's business is to accumulate the amazing sum of a hundred piastres two pounds and ten shillings to buy himself a wife and to make a feast on the wedding day if he have any children they want no clothing he leaves them to themselves till mother nature pleases to teach them to work to gain money enough to buy a shirt or some other rag to cover themselves for while they are children they are generally naked or covered with rags the parents are roguishly cunning and the children are schooled by their example so that it becomes a matter of course to cheat strangers would any one believe that in such a state of life luxury and ambition exist if any woman be destitute of jewels she is poor and looks with envy on one more fortunate than herself who perhaps has the worth of half a crown around her neck and she who has a few glass beads or some sort of coarse coral a couple of silver brooches or rings at her arms and legs is considered as truly rich and great some of them are as complete coquettes in their way as any one to be seen in the capitals of europe i often noticed that modesty was most apparent among the ugliest these do not care to let a stranger see their faces as they have nothing to gain by it they deem it better to keep it covered on the contrary one who hopes to excite admiration in the stranger takes care that some accident or other shall cause the veil or cloth or rag covering her face to fall or turn aside the artifice having succeeded she pretends to be quite anxious to cover herself again but she is satisfied the stranger has had his peep and she passes on proud that he knows her to be pretty when a young man wants to marry he goes to the father of the intended bride and agrees with him what he is to pay for her 
this being settled so much money is to be spent on the wedding feast to set up housekeeping nothing is requisite but two or three earthen pots a stone to grind meal and a mat which is the bed the spouse has a gown and jewels of her own and if the bridegroom present her with a pair of bracelets of silver ivory or glass she is happy and fortunate indeed the house is ready without rent or taxes no rain can pass through the roof and there is no door for there is no want of one as there is nothing to lose they make a kind of box of clay and straw which after two or three days exposure to the sun becomes quite hard it is fixed on a stand an aperture is left to put all their precious things into it and a piece of a mummy case forms the door if the house do not please them they walk out and enter another as there are several hundreds at their command i might say several thousands but they are not all fit to receive inhabitants while i was thus occupied in my researches at thebes we received news that the defterdar was to come up the nile again by this time i had arranged my operations and they were going on very well at karnak one morning previous to my crossing the nile to gurnu i set several men to work on a spot of ground at the foot of a heap of earth where part of a large colossus projected out mr beechey who sometimes visited the ruins did me the favour to superintend the works on that day and on my return from gournou i had the pleasure to find the discovery had been made of a colossal head larger than i had sent to england it was of red granite of beautiful workmanship and uncommonly well preserved except one ear and part of the chin which had been knocked off along with the beard it is detached from the shoulder at the lower part of the neck and has the usual corn measure or mitre on its head though of larger proportion than the young memnon it is not so bulky or heavy as it has no part of the shoulder attached to it i had it removed to luxor which employed eight days though the distance is little more than a mile i had by this time accumulated at luxor articles enough to fill another boat as large as that of the preceding year besides this head which is ten feet from the neck to the top of the mitre i procured an arm belonging to the same colossus which measures also ten feet and with the head will give a just idea of the size of the statue i brought also the famous altar with the six divinities in alto relievo which are the most finished works of any i have seen in egypt it was thrown from its pedestal in a small temple in the northeast angle of the wall enclosing the great temple of karnak the pedestal is still there and is of a kind of whitish marble i had also four large statues with the lion heads and the cover of the sarcophagus of which so much was said on my first visit it cost much trouble as may be supposed to remove a heavy piece of granite from those abysses through a place scarcely high enough to allow a man to sit on the ground up an uneven and craggy ascent by the assistance of people strangers to every sort of order and who had to contend with the dust that rose under the feet and the excessive heat from the number of labourers i had it conveyed over the water to luxor ready to embark and it was well that i did so 
fortune seemed to favor me so far this time for no sooner had i finished the operation and made the above collection than an order came from the defterdar bey who had arrived at gamola three miles north of thebes to all the cachefs and kamaikans who commanded on both sides of the thebes not to permit the english party to accumulate any more antiquities nor to allow the arabs to work or sell anything more to them on any account i must inform my reader that the two agents for the opposite party had gone into gamola on the arrival of the bay and requested him to send this order under the pretext that they could not find or buy a single article in consequence of the english who laid their hands on everything he did not want much persuasion to this and immediately sent for the chiefs of gournou luxor and karnak to whom he gave strict orders as above the sheikh of gournou came to tell us of the order the bey had issued the poor fellow who was rather attached to us was very sorry for his part but said he must obey it was too late to set off that evening to see the bey so i waited till early the next morning on my arrival i found the mighty potentate seated on his divan surrounded by his cachefs and a number of other attendants he received me more coolly than on my former visit he inquired whether i had not yet made up my collection i answered that as long as i had his permission i would still endeavour to find something more i presented the letter from the bashaw but if i had brought him a present it would have had a better effect as he saw the address previous to taking the letter into his hands he dexterously turned the discourse on other business and half an hour passed before i could bring the subject on again while he still contrived to divert i was at a loss what to think of his behaviour and began to inquire if there were any reason why our works were stopped at karnak and orders given at gournou that the english should not purchase anything and on what account they were to be distinguished from the opposite party he looked at the letter a second time and with a smile told the cachefs what the bashaw had written but the letter was expressed in a manner as if the old bashaw were in his dotage and quite childish so that the bey might do as he pleased in the affair he then put the letter aside and began to talk of other matters i saw that he wanted an excuse for his conduct towards us for he said that he had been informed that the fellas had complained of being so exceedingly ill-treated by us that we drew our swords every moment to cut off their heads and that we beat them continually at this i rose from my seat and said i was surprised that a man of his good understanding could believe such reports and condemn us without proof that if he would inquire into the matter he would find it to be all faults and that it was his duty to do me justice he answered that we had bought nearly every article of antiquity that could be obtained in gournou while the other party could purchase nothing and therefore it was time to stop our proceedings i replied what we had bought had been voluntarily sold us by the arabs and begged him not to believe what he heard from our opponents who played such tricks that we could not be aware of them he continued to talk of other things till at last i asked him what he intended to do with respect to the order for karnak to which he made no reply but inquired whether gournou were far off on being shown the place out of the window six miles distant he ordered horses and in a few minutes we set off for that place 
we arrived in two hours and he went straight on to memonium where he inquired about these great mosques as he named them and put several questions concerning the buildings and the colossi that were there he then proceeded to the two colossi and from them to medinet whither i followed him as i was determined to have the order he gave to the sheikhs recalled i sought an opportunity to speak to him tete-a-tete and indeed i had many but all to no purpose for the moment i began to mention the business he put some other question so that my words were of no effect still i was determined not to lose my patience as i saw this was what he wanted and resolved not to leave him a moment for it is the character of the turks that they must be importuned into compliance with whatever is against their inclination after a general survey of the ruins he seated himself before the famous battle painted on the wall and gave his opinion respecting it observing it was impossible that the colouring could have been done at the time the figures were made as it was so fresh and the stones were so much broken i told him it was owing to the climate of the country that these things were preserved but he persisted in his opinion that it was impossible it could be so then quitting his station he seated himself under the archway of the first entrance and called the sheikh of gournou whom he knew to be our friend and who had received the order the night before the poor sheikh trembling all over at this call was asked how many men there were in gournou who dug the ground in search of mummies the sheikh answered six or seven i saw the bey did not know what to do to gratify his spleen and as he could not avoid retracting the order the poor sheikh was to suffer and our party to be mortified a diabolical thought came into his head and he asked the sheikh if he could find in gournou a mummy that had not been opened the sheikh answered that one might be found if he gave him time to search but the people who find them always open them instantly on this the bey flew into a great rage and insisted that one should be found immediately and if he did not find it he would give him the bastinado the poor sheikh was ordered to dig directly under his feet and take out a mummy but he answered that the mummies were in gournou and none were ever found in the place where he stood and it was well for him that one of the attendants and a kachef confirmed what he said the bey then sent him to gournou and told him to see that he found a mummy the bey then sent him to gournou and told him to see that he found a mummy in its case and unopened and he allowed him an hour for doing it the poor sheikh attempted to speak but was turned out by three or four soldiers a little after the bey began to ask some other questions respecting the temple particularly if we had taken any drawings adding that he could draw himself if he had paper and pencils i told him i had no doubt he might make some good sketches from what was before him on which he asked me for a pencil and some paper which i gave him from my pocket-book and he made a sketch of the capital of one of the columns that are before the gate when finished it was shown to all around with great parade he praised it himself highly and every one agreed that it was very fine indeed he then gave it to me with an air of self-conceit saying there see what i can do i took it put it into my pocket and have preserved it as it may give an idea of the person by whom it was executed we left medinet abu and came to gournou and under a dune tree 
saw the sheikh and some of the janizaries with the mummy ready for his highness before he drew near to ascertain the bey began to cry out that he was sure it had been opened by one of the fellows who searched for mummies and it was in vain he was told otherwise and that he had himself found it i did not imagine things would be carried to such an extreme that the case had been opened no one could suspect but the bey wanted a pretense to beat the poor sheikh for being our friend accordingly he ordered him to be immediately stretched on the ground and such a scene ensued that i heard from the turks themselves expressions both of displeasure and disgust i perceived that all this was owing to the intrigues of our opponents who had told the bey that the sheikh was our friend and as they brought him some trifling presents to back their assertion of course he listened to what they said i did not fail to intercede for the poor unfortunate wretch who all this time was under the stick but it was useless and i was persuaded the more i entreated the more beating he would receive the interpreter not reflecting on what he did ventured to intercede in the name of mr salt the british consul at which the bey laughed he then begged in the name of his father-in-law the bashaw and the bey made answer that he was the sole commander in all business there adding to the man who was punishing the sheikh go on go on and hard by this time the poor fellow was like the mummy that lay by his side deprived of sense and feeling and with a little more beating i have no doubt would have remained there for ever and been buried where he lay i leave to the imagination of any friend of humanity to what a height my blood rose and what my feelings must have been at that moment i can assure the reader i did not think i could have stood so long without openly declaring them but i reflected that my losing my patience would answer no good purpose and only expose me to insults from the bay for all he wanted was an opportunity to justify him in acting as he liked towards us reason however subdued not my rage but it restrained the mere action of my body and i stood for a long time motionless the bay was smiling and i was afraid might discover the state of my feelings which would have increased his pleasure at last he told the man to stop and the miserable sheikh was carried to his cave as into his tomb and was indeed more fit for the tomb than for a house the bey then caused the mummy to be opened and finding nothing he exclaimed if they did not bring him one that was entire he would throw the sheikh into the river observing that i avoided speaking to him for i was too much disgusted even to continue near such a being he called another sheikh and ordered that henceforth whatever antiquities were found in gurnu should be sold to our opponents on my representing to him that i now felt myself under the necessity of riding to cairo that very night he mounted his horse called my interpreter and bade him dispatch a man to gamola and he would send an order by him to have the men at work the next day i told him that i should send to cairo notwithstanding this apparent change in his sentiments as it was incumbent on me to let the bashaw know how his commands were obeyed i then went to see the sheikh whom i found unable to speak i did all i could for him but there was such fear amongst the arabs that they dreaded having anything to do with us End of part eleven